Hey, what's up, Bridgetown family? Tyler here letting you know that early bird registration for this year's Holy Spirit Conference is officially live right now on our website. It is $85, only $85 to register for this year, and you can find that at bridgetown.church slash holyspirit. We're going to be joined by Simon Ponsonby, a brilliant author and scholar from Oxford, by Jordan Seng, a beautiful practitioner who leads an incredible community called Blue Water Mission right in the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii, and then the wonderful songwriters and worship leaders Rich and Lydia Dikas from KXC Church in London. So you don't want to miss this. We've moved this year to the Portland Ballroom right in the heart of our city in an effort to make more space as we've sold out quite quickly in years past. So go ahead and mark your calendars January 26 and 27 in Portland. Uh, all are welcome and invited and you're going to want to register very soon to make sure you lock in a spot and the earliest rate possible. Bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit. See you in January. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judah, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus, um, just as the promises of the prophets were not enough, but needed to be fulfilled by your presence drawing near to us, so reflecting on the ancient story is not enough. And so we ask that your presence would draw near to us as you drew so near to all of them some 2,000 years ago now and that we could know you in our midst today in the circumstances of our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit fulfilling your promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So um, approximately six weeks ago today, I woke up at 3 a.m. in a hotel room in Istanbul, wide awake. Christian was audibly snoring in the twin bed next to me in the room. I was deeply jealous of this younger man who jet lag had no hold on. I can remember those days, but now my hair is turning gray and my ankles swell on flights, and I cannot turn my body clock over the way I once could. I'm getting older. 
So I laid awake and read another couple chapters in my novel, and when daylight started to break, I got up and I went out for a jog. Now, Istanbul is a very congested, very busy city. It's got twice the population as New York City. So when I found this long, quiet stretch of road that no one else was on, I began to pray aloud in gratitude, thanking God for this respite of peace on this early morning. And it was about that time that I passed by a dog. And I had noticed that the city of Istanbul is filled with wild dogs, a lot like how New York City is full of pigeons and uh, Portland is full of crows. And this particular dog uh, decided to join me on my jog, which wasn't in my plans. Um, and he seemed angry, so I picked up the pace quite a bit <laughs> as a wild dog was literally nipping at my heels. I quieted my prayers of gratitude and began to use all of the oxygen in my lungs to propel myself forward. Around that time, we passed by another dog who also decided to join the fun. This trend continued until, I promise I'm not exaggerating in any way here, six wild dogs are chasing me as I'm running at a, an Olympic clip that would have made Usain Bolt feel intimidated down this abandoned street in Istanbul, and they are barking and nipping at my heels. That is when I looked up and saw it, that this street ends in a construction zone. This is why it was a peaceful respite in the middle of the city that no other cars or people were on because it leads about one mile directly into a dead-end construction zone. Not knowing what else to do and fearing for my life in a foreign land, I leaped over the barrier and began to tear through the construction zone like it was an obstacle course, at which point I slipped on some combination of mud from the rainy morning and wet cement. By the time I made it back to the hotel room, I was significantly bloodied from the fall, soaking wet, and had some dried bit of Istanbul sidewalk running all up my left leg. As I scanned the key and opened the door, Christian was just emerging from a great night's slumber <laughs> and just burst out laughing. Needless to say, we arrived 10 minutes late, which is unfortunately my trademark, to the first of a series of worship gatherings that I would preach over that week. And of all of the unlikely places that I've been privileged to go telling stories about Jesus, surely none has humbled me like those six days in Istanbul did. I got to travel to Istanbul this fall with the team from this church, and we were there in partnership with Elon Ministries, which is the largest pastoral training um, and church planting movement in the nation of Iran, uh, a country where it is illegal to own a copy of the Bible or to gather in the name of Jesus in any way. Jail time and even the death penalty being threatened for those who risk the breaking of this law. All to say all these pastors that I was there to teach were quite literally risking their lives to gather in underground house churches in homes throughout the nation to tell the story of Jesus. And statistically speaking, the church in the Persian world where they are gathering is the fastest growing church anywhere in the world today. So we met up in Turkey, a bordering nation where it would be safe for us to gather, and between teachings over the week that followed, I got to know Farshid. Farshid was the victim of an, infamous, of an infamous day in Iranian church history, Christmas Day 2010, when there was an organized raid of many house churches that the government had spotted uh, and planned to raid all in one day throughout the nation. So after leading a celebration of, on the birth of Christ the night before among his small congregation, Farshid had been tipped off by a series of calls from the government telling him that he needed to come home immediately for a talk. And Farshid was out that morning because he was a father of two small children who he was dropping off at their elementary school. And he told me of bending down to look his seven-year-old daughter in the eye, the older of the two, and saying, Daddy loves you so much, and I don't think I'm going to see you for a while. And then dropping her off at school, when he returned home, uh, he was arrested. He spent the next year of his life in solitary confinement in a cell too small for him to lay down flat in with no mattress, just one pillow and a blanket, and he was allowed one two-minute shower 
per week. After that year, he was moved into general population prison where he spent the next year. He would not see his daughter again for 10 more years until she was 17 years old. I have a seven-year-old. And I thought about that moment and what it would have been like for me to really endure that. I cannot imagine the cost that that father has paid to tell the story that we just read a moment ago this morning to his neighbors. I got to know two young women whose names I'm not at liberty to share safely publicly. And between teachings through a translator, they came and asked me if, if I would mind if they ran a few questions by me about the Bible that had nothing to do with what I had been teaching about. And I said, sure. And then out came this really insightful question about the Old Testament sacrificial system and how that squares up with the way of Jesus. And then that one question spilled into another question and then another. These were smart, inquisitive young women. And I just happened to be obsessed with the Bible. So we're having this really fun conversation, chatting, but there's tears streaming down my cheeks as we're having this conversation at the Bible because I can see so much of myself in them and so much of them in me and, and this shared fascination with God and his story and this determination to dig for treasure in the most complicated bits of the story. But in another way, we are so different because I've never had a single barrier to searching out those answers. It's actually my only life skill. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at two young women growing up in a patriarchal society who were born into a country where it is not legal to own a copy of the scriptures and have now been exiled as refugees into a neighboring country that has no Bible colleges or institutions, no opportunity for formal biblical training whatsoever. I've never had a single barrier and the deck has been stacked against them in every possible way, but the core hunger that we share is identical. And I got to know Kayvon. Kayvon was my translator for the 15 sermons that I preached over those six days. Every word I said, he said it too right after me. Every conversation I had over a meal, every prayer that I prayed for someone else, every question that I responded to, he repeated every word that I said in Farsi and every word that they said back to me in English. So when we finished up the second to last day, and I had just one day of teaching remaining, I remember saying to him, Whew, I am exhausted. I'm going back to the hotel to turn in early. I bet you have been crashing hard like me at night. And that's when I discovered that when he returned to the hotel at night, he would stay up late reviewing my sermon outlines for the following day, looking up all the English words I was using that he didn't know how to translate into Farsi off the top of his head, practicing them so that he would be able to help deliver it as eloquently as possible to those on the receiving end. I've not been able to read the Bible same since I got back from meeting those people. And so when I read, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken for the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. I think of Farshid, of Kevon, and of those two young women. Silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright. Sure, if you're sucking on a candy cane on your way to the mall to make a few exchanges this year, right? If, if you sanitize and sentimentalize this story and rip it from its context and set it down or take it out of the larger narrative that it fits within, then it, it might have been a silent and holy night, all calm and bright. But if you want the real story, then you're going to have to resist the urge to sanitize and sentimentalize it and instead take it at face value. And Luke starts the story with a corrupt, tyrannical ruler calling for a global census that bats the poor and the oppressed around like unnoticeable dust particles in the air. And so here's Mary, full-term pregnant, making a long journey on foot and maybe a little bit of donkey if she's lucky. And I see Farshid ripped from the people that he loves most on Christmas Day. And I see those two young women unable to get their hands on the story that we call good news for the majority of their lives. And now that they've got it, they're having a real hard time figuring out how to dig deeper. And I see Kayvon rubbing his tired eyes in that hotel room, working on tomorrow's translation somewhere just so near the border where all of his family lives that he can no longer return to. That's where the story known as Advent goes down. 
not on a silent and holy night, but in a time of political turmoil and among a poor young couple who's powerless to do anything about it except be battered around by it. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. One of the really surprising aspects of creator becoming creation is that hardly anybody noticed. One church father says it poetically, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. There were a couple of exceptions, though. There was these two moments of when heaven burst out to alert a few witnesses to the significance of what was happening. First, there was a group of shepherds. A small team of shepherds working the night shift in an especially rural part of an already small town. And shepherds, socially speaking, were nobodies. They were almost always illiterate, if not entirely uneducated in any formal sense. And these shepherds were without land or sheep of their own, and so they had to be hired to care for the livestock of someone else while uh, their family slept overnight. And Luke points out that these particular shepherds were living in the fields nearby. So they're houseless, camping on the property of their employer. And shepherds weren't just a socioeconomic outcast, they were moral outcasts as well. They had such an immoral reputation that in most circumstances, shepherds were not allowed to enter the Jerusalem temple at all. Because of the, the nature of their work, they were unable to observe the laws of ceremonial cleanliness uh, required to enter into the temple. And as a result, uh, never under any circumstances were shepherds often seen in the house of God. They also had a reputation as thieves, kind of like the pirates of their time. So if you were traveling down a road and saw a group of shepherds, you would uh, at least switch to the other side of the road, if not find another route to get where you were going altogether. And on the night of God's entrance into the world, they are the ones that he gave special attention to. Angels invited those who were deemed unworthy to enter God's house to welcome God in the flesh first for his arrival. God eagerly drew near to the vagabond pirates that everyone else fearfully drew away from. It is so fitting, so telling of who Jesus would become in the kingdom that he would leave behind that these were the first people on his guest list. Back to the story. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's a significant phrase, one that connects the beginning of Luke's story back to the beginning of the grand story that it fits within. On the Bible's very first page, Genesis does not open with a conflict in need of resolution. It opens with harmonious union. Prior to plucking that forbidden fruit from that one forbidden tree, no human being in God's Edenic creation had ever experienced fear. No one ever had to be told, do not be afraid, which after the whole sin fiasco becomes the most repeated phrase in the whole of the Bible. But, and this is so crucial, people weren't fearless because there was nothing to fear. And there's still boundaries to keep. There's a tree not to eat from. And there's still a serpent in paradise vying for their attention, a liar not to believe. Human beings were designed to live without fear, not because of fearless circumstances, but because of relationship. Now, this is an imperfect analogy, but I think it's probably the closest we can get. Think of a small child who's entirely unaware of need or insecurity. A child can grow up in their early years to a mom and dad who struggle to keep food on, or to put food on the table at night, can grow up in the midst of a particularly rough, crime-ridden neighborhood, and can grow up with parents who are on the brink of losing their jobs or losing the house to foreclosure, but the child can feel none of that anxiety or fear. Why? Because of relationship to a provider, to mom and dad. I don't think about where my food's coming from at night. It's just brought to me and set on the table. I don't think about what's going on outside the front door, just what's going on within this home or what this month's budget looks like. And that's not because I was born into a world without fear. It's because of the one I was born into relationship to. And then in Genesis Temptation, the serpent takes aim, not at Adam and Eve's inability to resist the fruit, but at the pressure point of their fearlessness at their trust in relationship to God. Genesis 3, verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now this is the most effective kind of lie because there are seeds of truth in it. It is a deception, not an outright fallacy, a twisting and a bending of the truth. Because in Genesis 2, God did say you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but there's this one that if you eat from it, it'll kill you. In Genesis 3, the enemy flips that command from generous to narrow and restrictive. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You see, he's flipping a very generous command to seem narrow and stingy. He is not asking Eve to eat the fruit. He is chipping away at her trust in God. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The most fascinating part of the original lie, at least in my opinion, is that nowhere does the serpent ever tempt Eve or Adam after her to eat the fruit. Nowhere is there a temptation toward behavior at all. He sows a lie that is aimed at relationship. Where there was once love and only love and fearless love, the serpent introduces the possibility of fear. And when Eve and then Adam after her reach for the fruit, they are acting on that fear. They are remembering God, not as they have experienced God, but as the serpent has recast God. Psychologist David Benner says, fear is the tragic result of trying to steal something from God that we did not have to steal. Had we dared to trust God's goodness, we would have discovered that everything we could ever most deeply long for would be ours in God. Trying to gain more than the everything God offers, we end up with less than nothing. We become a false self. The family inheritance that you were born into and the faith that you and I have freely chosen for ourselves is one and the same. We've all bought into that ancient deception to try to steal something from God that we did not have to steal. And the one word uh, name for that condition is fear. Fear is the perfectionism that gets in the way of my relationships. It's the need to present the perfect home or the perfect appearance or the perfect children. Fear is the definition of success I carry everywhere with me, though I'm not sure when I chose that definition or even if I'm the one who chose it. It's the need to keep the momentum going, to keep on climbing the professional ladder or climbing the athletic ladder or climbing the social ladder. It's a need to get to the top just to see how it feels. Fear is the insecurity or the emptiness that I feel when I'm alone. It's the way that I play with my social calendar like a Rubik's Cube, making and remaking plans weeks and months from now because I fear being alone with nothing to do and no one to be with. Fear is the anxiety that eats me up at the end of the day and keeps me up at night. It's my obsession over my diet or my calorie count or my steps. It's my to-do list that plays and plays when I lay my head down unable to ever turn it off. Fear is the escapism that I cannot resist. It's the drink that I can't resist in the evening. It's the day that I can't resist taking off at the drop of a hat. It's the way I'm prone to turn every ordinary Tuesday into something more extraordinary. It is the hum of discontent that I just defer with each one of those escapes, never really dealing with. Fear is the hum of shame that is louder and more constant than love. Psychologically speaking, one critical comment outlives seven compliments in the human imagination and memory. It's the way that no matter how many times I hear and sing about promises of God's unquenchable, unconditional love, I find it almost impossible to make it 24 hours living like that love really is real and does belong to me. There's so many different varieties of it. There's as many varieties as there are people, but the banner that all of these fall under is fear. In the words of sociologist Alan de Botton, we are all crazy in some way. The crucial question at the depth of any relationship is not, is he crazy? It's what are the ways that you are crazy? What parts of your life have been blocked by fear? How exactly do you self-destruct? In what ways have you not been loved? We knew fearlessness at first, not by perfect circumstances, but by perfect relationship. And that's why the enemy of our souls takes aim at the very crux of our power, relationship. So now back to Luke's unlikely cast, those shepherds who are working the night shift. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Well, why not? Why shouldn't I fear? 
Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Why shouldn't I fear? Because of relationship to this person with three names. He is Savior, the Rescuer, the One who saves. He is Messiah, meaning the Anointed One, the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets, the culmination to which the redemption of all of human history points. He is the Lord, meaning the One with authority, the Author, the Creator from the very beginning, Yahweh. The antidote to the fear that you and I have both inherited and chosen is relationship. There is no fear in love, writes the Apostle John, but perfect love casts or drives out fear. Fear is not driven out by perfect circumstances or perfect performance or perfect peace or perfect security, but only perfect love. You and I were designed first to live without fear by relationship, relationship to God that enables us to live fearlessly in God's world. The serpent's only trick was and is to convince you to get a fearless life by some other way than relationship, to convince you to fend off your fears by perfect circumstances, perfect performance, perfect peace, or perfect security. The serpent's only trick was and is to convince you that the one named Savior can't save from this. So you better save yourself or settle for something short of thriving but better than desperation. So you might know Jesus as a counselor to offer you advice or a spiritual guide to dispense wisdom or a spiritual coach to prescribe practices to grow you up in wisdom, but not as a Savior who rescues you from the hole that you fell in. Despite the fact that you dug this hole and you have no reason that one should crawl, crawl down into it to pull you out, but here he comes crawling. So you may know Jesus, but do you know him as the angels name him? Rescuer. I know what it feels like to fall into holes I've dug for myself. Do you know what it feels like to know the grip of the rescuer that pulls you back up to your feet? Or to convince you that the Messiah uh, works my way instead of God's? Through power and not through spectacle, or, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, not through love, or through spectacle and not through hiddenness, through winners, not through underdogs, through celebration rather than sacrifice. So you may know Jesus, but do you know him as you have created him in your imagination or as he has presented himself to all of us? I know how weightless new mercies can feel and how heavy shame can be to carry. Do you know the Messiah who put skin and bones on those promises and got up under your burden to carry it beside you? Or to convince you that the Lord is a father who dotes on you and a friend who walks beside you, but not a king who reigns and reigns supreme and shares the whole of the spoils of his kingdom with you and me. So you may know Jesus as comforting friend, an insightful teacher, compelling martyr, even resurrected savior, but the king to whom every knee will bow? I know how harsh and unfair the world is. I know the kind of suffering that brings you to your knees weeping. Do you know the kind of king who brings you to your knees in worship? The kind of king that ends suffering for all time. You see, what I'm trying to show you, family, is that the aim of the deceiver has not moved an inch. The original lie is the current lie to convince you to know God, not as he's made himself known, but as the deceiver has recast him in your and my imagination. The angels reintroduced the possibility of a fearless life in a corrupted world by relationship. Relationship to the only one who can love us perfectly. Okay, well, where can I find him? This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This overwhelming heavenly promise is hidden in the commonness of the everyday world. Yuri Gagarin was the first Soviet astronaut to orbit the Earth. The year was 1961, and the race was on between the U.S. and the USSR to see who could get there quicker. And upon his return, he held a press conference where he uttered the now famous words, Comrades, I have circled far above the Earth and have discovered that there is no God in heaven. To which a Russian Orthodox priest, who happened to be seated there among the press, stood up and immediately said, Brother, you will never find God in heaven if you can't first find him here on earth. And that's the Advent plot. Overwhelming heavenly promise hidden in the commonness of the everyday world. 
Because God could be found not only in libraries and uh, among philosophers and theologians and not only in the stained glass temple among the priests, but by shepherds who couldn't read the books in those libraries and weren't allowed to walk inside that temple. Because God could be found by shepherds in a Bethlehem stable. God can be found by Farshid on the first night of solitary confinement in a cell too small to lay down in. And by those young girls in the midst of a journey with scripture that's being opposed in every imaginable way. And by Kayvon rubbing his eyes late in a hotel room alone. And by you and me. He is not the God of intellectual ascent or moral perfection or sanitized, sentimentalized fairy tale. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. And the whole scene with the shepherds, it culminates with the camera panning out and the soundtrack kicking in and, and this famous Christmas promise, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's the famous version at least. It's the King James translation of the angel's song that made it into all of our hymns and gets all the press. And that version lands softly with us because it sounds like the arrival of this king is good news for everyone. The NIV that we read this morning, though, and the unified scholarly consensus among the most reputable of English Bible translations reads differently. It says, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And that doesn't land as softly, because that implies that the arrival of this king isn't, in fact, good news and peace for everyone. The King James translation works better in the cozy Christmas Eve gathering, but in Farshid's cell, and among the opposition that those young women are experiencing, and in Kayvon's hotel room, in the gritty world that Luke insists the Advent story comes within, the arrival of the Messiah is good news, but not for everyone. And that brings us to our second cast of characters. We've got shepherds and magi. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. There were a couple exceptions, though. Just two moments when heaven could not hold back and burst into an announcement to two very unlikely groups of people. There were shepherds, and then there were magi. And that takes us from Luke chapter 2 over to Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The world of psychology has coined the term the illusory truth effect for the phenomenon that human beings tend to believe things simply by repetition, even if those things aren't backed up by fact at all. This is the scientific explanation for why some of you believe that if you swallow your gum, it'll stay in your stomach for seven years, and why you think we only use 10% of our brains. It's why you think that we lose most of our body heat through our heads and that the Great Wall of China is visible from space. It's why middle school boys across America are shaving their peach fuzz and hope that it will grow back darker and thicker and why you think that your pet is perfectly happy in that little glass bowl with turquoise rocks at the bottom because goldfish have a memory that only lasts three seconds. And it's why you think that three wise men showed up on the night that Jesus was born with doTERRA essential oils for gifts. <laughs> and I really hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but the truth is the nativity scene from your childhood Christmas pageant and your grandmother's mantle and that one awesome scene from Home Alone, none of them are telling the truth. The truth is the Magi, however many of them there were, because we don't know, were about 900 miles from Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born. They weren't there on that silent and holy night. They rolled in with their gifts when Jesus was a rambunctious toddler, somewhere around two years old. Matthew's gospel doesn't refer to this group as wise men, but as magi, which is short for magician, and it refers to the priestly class of ancient Persia. Persia, or Persians, also known as Babylonians, were Israel's most recent oppressor. They ransacked Jerusalem and drug off the best and brightest into exile in their homeland. 
Magi were the leaders of the Babylonian temple. They were the priests of their society. They were revered and honored. They were also wealthy and held very high social and political status. This is the group to whom Daniel, the lion's den guy, was forced to join when he was taken captive. And because of Daniel and his friends, the Hebrew Bible was translated from Hebrew into Aramaic to be read in exile. And that meant that the Hebrew Bible was accessible to the Magi, to be understood within the temple that worshipped and dabbled in spirituality of all kinds, but the Magi certainly would have been familiar with the God of the Jews and the expectation of this coming Messiah. And so when the Magi arrive in Jerusalem after a two-year spiritual pilgrimage to get into the presence of Jesus saying, we saw his star and have come to worship him, two possibilities emerge as to what they might mean. One is that they may have actually navigated this 900-mile journey all the way to Jerusalem simply by the stars in the night sky, which is not ancient superstition. It's actually very sophisticated navigation. To this day, sailors, many sailors, navigate the Pacific, bouncing between continents, relying only on the position of the stars in the sky. But more likely, based on the clues that Matthew gives us, tying this group back to the Old Testament book of Daniel, they are saying that they experienced something of what the shepherds experienced, that angels appeared to them on the night of Jesus' birth, sending them on pilgrimage to find the ones that the angels sang about. After all, it was Daniel who referred to angelic spiritual beings as stars, biblically speaking. And when the Magi say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, they're making a reference to Daniel's prophecy in chapter 8. So within the biblical story, it certainly seems like the gospel writers are saying, when God was born one of his own creation, almost nobody noticed. Nobody except two very unlikely groups who were tipped off by the heavenly beings themselves, shepherds and Magi. And the role of the Magi in the Advent story holds a whole lot in common with the shepherds, with two obvious exceptions. The first is that while their spiritual journey uh, originated with a common experience and ended worshiping the same Lord, the journeys they took looked very different from one another. For the shepherds, God's promise was fulfilled immediately. They had a divine encounter one night that sent them on a spiritual search, and before the sun rose the following morning, they were, their journey had ended in God's presence. It was a smooth journey from encounter right into relationship. But for the Magi, it happened just as decisively, but was a whole lot slower. They had a divine encounter one night that sent them on a spiritual search, and then two, two years and 900 miles later, they found that that search ended in God's presence. It was a long and winding journey. And I wonder, how many times along the way did they doubt their own spiritual experience that started it in the first place? How many times in that two-year journey did they question whether they had really seen what they thought they had seen and whether they were going completely crazier if they were responding to the living God? They got to the same place, but by very different timelines and different obstacles, and I like that. Because it sheds light on our own spiritual experience. It acknowledges that the journey to Jesus begins in different starting places, sending us on very unique pilgrimages, but it is Jesus that we're all looking for when we're looking for God. Yeah. And secondly, the shepherd's appearance stands all on its own, but the magi seem to be one-seen characters who are there to shed light on a recurring character named Herod. You see, Herod, the king of this region, gets wind that the foreign priests are in town claiming that a king has been born in his kingdom, and he gets insecure and goes investigating for himself only to discover that the biblical prophecies do, in fact, say that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, which just so happens to be his territory. Herod interrogates the Magi himself and tries to get information out of them. You see, the Magi are there to show us something about Herod. That the, the very one whose arrival uh, banished fear from the lives of so many only exposed fear in the lives of others. Because when the king walks into the room, it's good news for everyone. Except those trying to convince the world or maybe just convince themselves that they are the king. And I believe that the inside of the church of our time is that the kingdom comes now. That heaven is invading earth even right now. And the corresponding blind, side, blind spot of the church of our time is that there's very little longing for Jesus to come again. 
The Western world today is one uh, where there are interruptions of pain, but the consistent experience is comfort. And when comfort is the defining experience and pain or suffering is the interruption, you tend to think a whole lot more about the mustard seeds of the kingdom that are sprouting up here and now than you do about the return of the king himself to bring uh, peace and peace only and peace all the time. And, and that's a good thing because heaven really is invading earth right now and God really is renewing the world through his people. But Luke and Matthew's gospels both insistently ground themselves in a historical period among a people to whom suffering was the common experience and comfort was the interruption. It's Farshid and solitary confinement and those two young women in a Turkish refugee camp, and Kayvon, separated from his family and unable to cross the border back to his native country, those settings have more in common with the world into which Jesus came and lived than my living room does. And that's nothing against my living room. It's just an honest explanation that my unchecked imagination tends to be more captive to the kingdom than the king. And I can't be the only one. The king walked in first as a helpless infant, and the king will come a second time, this time without the disguise, and the light of his presence will do to all of us what it did to Herod. It will lay bare every hidden layer of every human heart, expose the secret motives of my ego, the secret habits of my private life, the secret judgments in my mind, and the secret behavioral patterns that I manage but don't confess. Every one of us will be found helplessly in need of mercy in the presence of the king. God is big enough to walk beside you as friend, comforting you in the place of your need, and to return as king, riding on a white horse for the whole world to tremble in awe and fall to their knees. And that's good news to everyone who's not trying to convince themselves that they are the king. Here is the good news that will cause great joy. This king's mercy forever outpaces his judgment. See, the layers of my heart can be laid bare before this king because he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As a father has compassion on his children, that's how he relates to us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how far his love reaches. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far his forgiveness stretches. He is the father who is running out to meet you. He is the rabbi cooking you breakfast on the beach. He is the shepherd coming and finding you as you walk away to Emmaus. And he is the supernatural risen savior appearing to Thomas in the midst of his doubt. Peace, a fearless way of living in this contested world, comes only by receiving love in the very place of my deep fear, even the fear that I dress up with a crown and a robe. The deceiver's original lie, it's still his only trick. It is to warp our view of God, to teach us to hide from the one who would heal us, to fear being exposed in a long line of those helplessly in need of mercy, the very mercy for which he longs to give us. I was backpacking with Andrew, my close friend and community leader from here in this church, and somewhere along the trail, I just began to uncover the hidden layers of my heart. And in the conversation, I began to share about my worries and anxieties and fears and regrets, share about the deep longings that I had for my marriage and for my parenting and for who I wanted to be as a friend. And share about the unique privilege of leading a community like this one and share about the loneliness and isolation and need that, to be humanized that can sometimes come along with leading a community like this one. And the way Andrew listened to me and the questions he asked and the little encouragements he offered and the silence that he held, all of it just pulled all of that out of me over the course of those hours on the trail. I exposed myself to him in all the ways that I felt afraid. And I exposed them to a friend before whom I felt safe. And in the midst of the sacred silence that fell between us after all of that, as we continued on the hike, I was reminded of this scene from The Horse and His Boy, one of the books in C.S. Lewis's classic, The Chronicles of Narnia, when Shasta, the main character, gets lost and He's alone and afraid on this long winding journey in the wilderness and he doesn't know where to go in the pitch black of night. He does not know how to get back to where he started or to get where he intended to go when he set out. And that's what fear does to us. Fear makes us suddenly aware that we don't know how to get back where we came from but we have lost track of where we were going when we set out in the first place. And it's about that time that Shasta hears it. This heavy breathing 
inhaling and exhaling, there's something or someone eerily close to him. And so he keeps walking, trying to get away from this, but every step he takes, he continues just to hear, And eventually he has the courage to say it. Who are you? And the lion Aslan, Lewis's depiction of Jesus, responds, one who has waited long for you to speak. And that scene popped into my mind because Andrew, on our backpacking journey through the wilderness, was to me who Aslan was to Shasta on his journey through the wilderness. It wasn't Andrew I was talking to, but Jesus companioning me through Andrew. It wasn't Andrew shining a light on me that exposed the secret hidden layers of my heart, but Jesus making that appeal to me through Andrew. It was Jesus, the one who has waited so long for me to speak the things I spoke on that trail so that he could forgive me and heal me and help me. You see, what I'm trying to show you is that Jesus is the king of the everlasting kingdom, and when he makes his return, he will come in glory so plain that every knee will bow. But right now, in this era that we live in between his advents, we are still in the presence of the king. Only he's made himself known so much more subtly. So that it is only those who recognize the presence of the king in disguise who fall on their knees and receive his mercy. And the primary way this king makes his appeal, the preferred disguise that he wears, and the place that he hides his glory, is in people. In ordinary people like shepherds and magi, and like you and me. So our story ends. When they had seen him, they spread word concerning him. Sorry, they spread word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. News that was first heard eloquently from angels sung in perfect, heavenly, angelic harmony will now be heard by everyone else through the rural dialect of night shift shepherds and the foreign accent of Babylonian magi. The fulfillment to every prophecy read in the temple will be entrusted to those restricted from setting foot in the temple. And the voices that to many in Israel ring of suffering and oppression will now ring with the deepest and most long-lasting kind of freedom. God put the message of human history not into the eloquent prose of the priests, but the blue-collar drawl of the shepherds and the distant accent of the magi. God put his treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power comes from him and not from us. Peace, a fearless way of living in this contested world, it can be received right here and right now between Advents, uh, between Jesus as the peasant child and Jesus as the triumphant king. And the way that we receive that peace in the midst of the fear that we carry today is primarily through other people, through shepherds, through magi, through Andrew, whose presence is uncovering the hidden deep layers of your heart. Is there someone in your life whose presence is uncovering the hidden layers of your heart? Or maybe another way of asking that is, there, is there someone in your life who can walk beside you as Christ? And then the adjoining question is, who are you meant to companion? Is there a neighbor that you're meant to know? a friend that you're meant to pursue, an environment that you're meant to show up to purposefully, a person that you are meant to bear witness to. Because God has put his treasure in jars of clay. He's hidden his treasure in people like you and me to show that this all-surpassing power, this good news that will cause great joy, comes from him and not from us. So this is the beginning of an Advent journey that we make again this year as a church family. This time under the title, You Will Be My Witnesses. Angels appear to shepherds in Israel and Magi in Persia, drawing an unlikely cast representing the two ends of the world to behold the king who came first as a helpless child. And angels appear in the sky a second time in Acts the sequel to Luke's gospel that we've been reading from. And there's a mirror scene that begins the sequel, just like the original, where angels show up to say, he will come again in the same way that you have seen him go. Is that good news? 
You get to decide. But in the meantime, while we wait and decide, he calls us his witnesses. It's not for you to know the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses, those fearless few recognize, who recognize royalty wrapped in rags and then live in response. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, with a couple of exceptions. And embodied in these exceptions, we have represented enemy and friend being reunited. We have represented oppressor and oppressed coming together. We have represented the whole of human history coming to recognize this one who rescues every last one of us. Peace as broad as global conflict and peace as deep as personal fear. All comes before this king in disguise.